Well, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. And Brother Matt read the passage for us this morning. It begins in verse 13. And we're walking through the Gospel of Mark, and we've come into the final week of the Lord's ministry, where He enters Jerusalem finally as the Messianic King. He's been doing all of the miracles He's been preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's been doing everything to present himself as the coming one. And he's done that without fanfare. He's done that without declaration. But now, in this final week, before he goes to the cross, Jesus initiates the, the wheels that, that will continue to turn and, 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 and end with his crucifixion and his burial, and then ultimately his, his resurrection. He presents his authority in the triumphal entry. He exercises his authority in the, in the cleansing of the temple, and then teaching after that, the leaders then oppose his authority the following day, and then they question him, and then they're judged for rejecting his authority in the parable of the, of the vineyard, of the, of the vine growers, the wicked vine growers. And what comes next in, in, in the Gospel of Mark and in all of the Gospels is a series of encounters that Jesus has with the religious leaders. There are four in particular in the Gospel of Mark. And, and if, if you want to think of it in light of the parable that Jesus just gave, the parable of the vineyard owner, you remember where he says that there was a, there was a man who planted a vineyard and he rents it out and he and, and when comes time, after about four years, when it comes time to pay the rent, which would have been the fruits of the vineyard, the, the owner sends his representatives, which are the prophets, and they, they reject them, and then they stone them. And then finally they send his son, and they kill the son. That's prophetic. It's a, it's a parable that Jesus tells to the religious rulers. In light of that parable, think about what, what we're getting ready to listen to this morning in these next few encounters as being able to listen to the dialogue between the son of the vineyard owner and the individuals that are, that are tending the vineyard. The son shows up. What do they say before they kill him? Well, that, that's what's happening in this, in this passage. When the son shows up to collect the fruit that's due, and, and it involves three questions, and then from them, and then Jesus asked a, a final question. We're only going to look at the first question today, and it's about paying taxes, which is one of my least favorite things to do. Amen? That's one of my least favorite things to do, paying taxes. It reminded me of a little boy who needed $100, so he decided to pray for it, and after two weeks of, of getting nothing, he decided to send a letter to the Lord asking for the money. And, and when the post office received the letter, it was just addressed to the Lord, United States of America. And so, not knowing what to do with it, they sent it to President Clinton whenever he was in office. And President Clinton was so touched by the letter, he sent the boy a $5 bill. And when the boy received the $5 bill, he wrote another letter to God that said this, Dear Lord, Thank you very much for sending me the money. However, for some reason, you had to send it through Washington, D.C., and as usual, those turkeys deducted $95. <laughs> the little boy had faith in God, not so much in the government. 
And while taxes are addressed in this passage, the real issue that the Lord exposes or reveals is the hypocrisy of the religious rulers, the temple rulers. They ask a question about taxes, and Jesus exposes their hypocrisy in answering the question about taxes. There are three questions that are recorded that show us the lack of fruit. So you're listening to the dialogue, and as you hear the dialogue, Jesus is displaying there's no fruit in the vineyard. These are the leaders. These are the ones that tended to the vineyard. These are the leaders of the temple, and there's no fruit. There's this hypocritical question about taxes. There's an ignorant question about the resurrection where Jesus says, you don't know the Scriptures nor even the power of God. And then there's an incriminating question about the greatest commandment. The rulers of Israel were hypocrites. They didn't know their Bibles And they were outside of the kingdom. And Jesus says the ultimate evidence of that is they don't even know who the true son of David is. David knew that his Lord was the one that was coming. And and they, they didn't even realize that in verses 35 through 37. And the lesson that Jesus teaches us from this hypocritical question is how we are to live in a fallen world. In a world that, that is corrupt with corrupt leaders. And to those outside of the church, they're always complaining about the hypocrites inside the church. And so Jesus deals with the hypocrites. And those inside the church, us inside the church, we're always trying to figure out how to live in the world that's outside of it. And sometimes complaining about it as well. I do. And there will always be hypocrites in the church, but there's even more in the world. A hypocrite is someone who pretends to be something that they're not, and the world is full of people who believe that they're good and believe that they deserve heaven because of that. And the Bible says there's none that does good, no, not one. So there's always going to be hypocrites. And there's also always going to be the dilemma of true believers trying to work the angles of living in a fallen world. One of the hot-button issues right now is social justice. What do you do about justice? How do we make right all of the problems in the world and the the inequities and so on and and so forth? Then there's always going to be the dilemma of true believers living in a fallen world. As followers of Christ, you live where leaders are corrupt, laws are imperfect, and justice is never fully accomplished on this side of eternity. And you're going to be required to vote for them. Sometimes, as we say, the lesser of two evils. You're going to be called to obey laws. You're even going to be called to pay taxes. And those taxes will go for things that you would prefer that they don't go for. And we all long for the kingdom to come when that won't be the case. But until then, what do we do? How do we live? And Jesus teaches us our obligation to a system that's contrary to God, and it also teaches what everyone owes to Him as the Creator. The leaders asked Jesus the question concerning support of Rome in the form of paying taxes. They want to kill Jesus, and they can't because of the crowd, Mark tells us, And so they begin to conspire and lay a trap. And they're going to ask him a question that they think is like the Gordian knot. It's the, 
it thrusts him on the horns of the of a, a, a dilemma. They think it's an unsolvable situation for Jesus. If he answers yes about paying taxes to the Romans, if he says yes, pay it, then he's going to discredit himself to the crowds which, that that are fawning after him, the loyal Jews who obviously didn't like Rome and rightfully so. If he says don't pay it, don't pay the tax then he can be accused of treason, and then Rome will do the job for the Jews. They're going to arrest him as an insurrectionist. And so they think they ask him this question that, that he can't solve. But in the answer that Jesus gives, those inside the church, that's us, and those outside of the church, if you're not a believer here this morning, or, the, or, or, or anyone outside this, the church in the world that might even be listening this morning, You're instructed on what God demands of us while we live on the earth, whether you're part of the church or whether you're not part of the church. And Jesus' answer here gives two divine obligations that every person has while living on earth, believer or unbeliever. You have these two divine obligations. And the first one is your debt as a citizen. And that's in verses 13 through 17a. And I included verses 13 through 16. That's really the introduction. Really, the answer to that is 17a, the very last verse. He spends a lot of time, four verses in the intro, one verse with the instruction, the answer, and there are two commands in that, in that very last verse, verse 17. You have a debt as a citizen, and it's, it's a divine obligation that you have. And number two... You have a debt to your Creator, whether you're a believer or whether you're not. And that is in verse 17b. And Jesus answers and declares both of those things in this, in this passage this morning. And first, He directs it to His followers. That would be to us. The first answer is, yeah, I think really applies to us. What are we to do? When rulers over us are not godly. Look if you would at verse 13. Here's the introduction. And we'll get to the answer. It says, Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. So Mark hangs right up front what's going on here. So, so we're not, conf- not confused. The they, then they, that's the the chief priests and the elders, the ones that are, that are trying to, to kill him. There were the scribes, there were the Pharisees, there were the Sadducees, there were the Herodians, and all of them made up the, the, the Sanhedrin and the, the leaders, the chief priests. So this, this, the, the, the rulers send this, this delegation, some from the Pharisees and some from the Herodians, to Jesus as he's teaching freely, in order to trap him in a, in a statement. Luke says they watched him and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the governor. So Luke tells us even more than Mark does. The undercover group they sent was made up of Herodians and disciples of the Pharisees. I think it's very comical we get to see this because we're reading the Bible, but kind of put yourself in, 
in, in the Lord's shoes there, how comical they think they're disguised when, when God knows the very, the very hearts of the individuals is there. He knows the, the number of hairs on their head, just like He knows you this morning. You might think you're disguised. You might think that, that your wife or, or your, your co-worker, the person sitting next to you, doesn't know you and doesn't know what's going on in your life. And yet God knows exactly what's going on in your life. And I want you to miss this, because the Pharisees and the Herodians were not allies. I mean, this is, I mean, this would be like sending the, the Democrats and the Republicans together. I mean, that's how bad this would be. This would be like sending, I don't know, say Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump, the followers of both, to do a job together. Now, they're, they're not natural friends. In fact, they don't even like each other, the Pharisees and the Herodians. And it tells you how much they hate Jesus. The Herodians were Jews who were loyal to Rome. And because of that, they were very wealthy and they were very hated by the Pharisees, by the temple crowd. They got their name for their loyalty to Herod. They're Herodians who was empowered during the time. They're the, and, and the Herods were not, were not Jewish per se. They were descendants of the, of, of the Edomites. And because of their close connection to Rome, that would make a perfect witness against the Lord. If he said, don't pay the tax. So that's why they're there. And the Pharisees are probably there to keep watch and keep an eye on the Herodians. And both of them are there because they hate Jesus. And the clarity with which he spoke, the authority that he exercised over them. So they present this question as pilgrims wanting to learn, and they pose a question. Look at verse 14. <clears throat> they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one. You are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. They appeal to his pride with, with flattery. Beware anybody who comes up to you and the first things out of their mouth is to begin to tell you how great you are. All right? If, if, I've told you before, if you're listening to a preacher and he's the hero of every story, run. You don't want to be sitting under that guy. Beware of the opposite. The other person who comes up to you and everything that they tell you up front is how great you are. Now, there's nothing wrong with, with genuine thanksgiving. I'm very appreciative whenever you tell me the Lord used the sermon or the labor in your life. So I'm not condemning that. But that's not what's going on here. I mean, they say, they know, we know that you are truthful. Now think of just a few verses earlier. They supposedly don't know who sent John the Baptist. You remember that? <clears throat> and now they know all of this about Jesus. We know that you are truthful. We know that you're a rabbi, you're a teacher, which was a form of honor that was only, rec uh, only for recognized rabbis. You're a teacher from God. And they praise His ability to discern hard matters. And, and, and they say He doesn't care what anyone thinks, only God. And after all of that, they set up the punchline. Look at the punchline. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax, literally a poll tax, to Caesar or not? Shall we pay it, or shall we not pay? And that's the question. And they're asking, according to your interpretation, as a teacher, 
your interpretation of the law of God, not Roman law, the law of God, because you're a teacher. Should we as Jews pay taxes to the Romans and specifically the poll tax? And then they probably had a hard time holding back the smiles because they thought that they had him. The Roman taxation system was, was not complicated, but it, but it was corrupt. Surprise, surprise. The Roman taxation system, there was a specific region that was given to an individual by Rome. So if, if you were, if you had risen to, uh, to favor within the, within the, the Roman system, they would say, okay, you have responsibility for this specific area. And you have the right to collect taxes. Of course, you had to send it downstream. You had to send some back to Rome. But you had that right. And then, whoever that leader was would carve out little towns or otherwise and give somebody else the right over over that. And those who had the right to collect taxes, that was typically done by a tax collector. Again, you know exactly what that is. Matthew was a tax collector. And then they inflated the taxation amounts to lie in their own pockets gave what was due to the whoever had the right to collect the taxes, and then they kept some for themselves, and then they sent the rest to, to Rome. See, nothing's changed in 2,000 years, right? The system itself in Rome totaled over a third of a person's income. About 33% is what was normally collected. On top of that, the corruption, and you had a large portion of your income gone. In addition to that, there was like a, a value-added tax, similar to what you might have in Europe. There was a 10% tax on grain. There was a 20% tax on wine and oil. There was also a 1% income tax on wage earners and customs at ports and crossroads. So whenever you would be going down the, the road, almost like a toll road, you would have to pay a 1%. And finally, there is the tax that the, the scribes or the Pharisees and the Herodians are asking Jesus about here. It was called a poll tax or a head tax. And it was one denarius or one day's wage. And this tax was required to be paid by every citizen in the Roman Empire. And that was usually accompanied by a census. And that's exactly why Mary and Joseph were traveling to Bethlehem that we'll be talking about next month to pay this tax. And in exchange for the taxes, Rome provided peace, Rome provided a road system, a water system, and many other benefits. The tax went to build roads, to aqueducts, to fund armies, everything which made Rome the conquering ruler of its day. So, if you are a Jew... Paying taxes meant strengthening the hand of your oppressor. The poll tax in particular was despised by the Jews because it acknowledged that they were subjects of Rome. If you take a census, a census records the citizens of a specific country. And so for a Jew to pay the poll tax, they were acknowledging, they were forced to acknowledge that they were citizens of Rome and, and the Jews were not citizens of Rome in their minds. They belonged to God, and to pay that tax acknowledged that. Even worse, though, with the poll tax, you had to pay it with a specific coin, and that was a, a denarius, and it had an image of Caesar on it, and a blasphemous inscription. 
on one side of the coin, just like if you pulled a quarter out of your pocket right now, on one side there would be a head, right? Heads or tails. And the head of a denarius would have Caesar on it. And if you flipped over on the back side, it would have a blasphemous inscription. So the image of Tiberius Caesar's head with the inscription, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus, would be on the head side. And on the other side, it would say Pontifex Maximus, with Caesar Tiberius sitting upon a throne in priestly robes. And it was a religious title, so that obviously didn't sit well with, with the Jews. Pontifus literally means uh, um, bridge builder. He is like the, the, the one who builds a bridge between the gods. And Maximus, he's the greatest. He's the greatest bridge builder. He's the one who smooths the bridge between the men, between men and the gods. That's what Caesar did. And so the Jews obviously had a problem. And so they ask, as a teacher, what does God think about this? And look at Jesus' answer in verse 15. But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to examine or to, to look at it. Jesus says they're hypocrites. Well, can we know that from, from something other than just Jesus seeing their heart? He can see their heart. Well, yeah. They're setting him up with a question about governmental authority so that they could use that governmental authority to crucify him. And also, I want you to notice what he says. Show me a denarius. Notice that they had one. <laughs> he makes them produce the coin from their own pockets. He doesn't have one. They have one. And he says, whose likeness and inscription is this? Look at verse 16. They brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. So they hold up the head side. Jesus holds up the head side. Whose is it? Caesar's. In verse 17, Jesus answers, Then render unto Caesar that which is Caesar." And unto God, that which is God's, in verse 17 says that they were utterly astonished. It's, uh, it's, it's intensive in the original language. They were, they were mind blown. And they thought he had him. And not only do they, are they astonished because they, they don't get him, but he answers the question that they didn't think was answerable and he condemns them at the same time. The first divine obligation to those inside the church that you have to fulfill, I would guess you could say this is for everybody, but I'm applying it to us this morning, is to fulfill your debt of citizenship. Jesus says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, this is more than just a pithy way to answer the question. I mean, this is an obligation. This is a command, and it's very easy to miss. It would be very easy to miss the power. I mean, the, the reason that this is put here is not just to go, oh, wow, Jesus is way smarter than the Herodians. And there's an obligation that, that God gives to us here, and it's found in the word render. They say, is it lawful to pay? And Jesus says, render unto Caesar, which is the word apodidomy, which means 
to pay back. Pay back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Repay something that you owe like a debt. That's what this word means. Jesus is saying, you owe Caesar a debt, and so you pay that debt. He says, give Caesar what is due. You should not only pay the tax, but you must pay it. Because it's a debt that you owe, and we're to owe no man anything as believers. And Caesar's image is on the coin, and since you live in Caesar's realm, you must render to him what he's due. He's saying to the Jews, you can't have it both ways. You can't use the money, live in the country, take its benefits, and not pay for it. Every citizen has a debt. You're feigning spirituality by not paying taxes, but you have no problem using the money or the system or the roads that got here or the wells or whatever it is if that benefits you. And you're a hypocrite if you do that, is what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. The acceptance and the usage of Caesar's coins implied an obligation to pay Caesar. It's like him he's saying, you're using his coins, aren't you? Which, of course, they were, because they had no problem making money or taking money. It's like, if, if you are, then give him what you owe for the, for the use. I mean, the fact that the Caesar's head is on the coin is not just to beautify the coin. It means the Roman government backs up the monetary system. And if not, it's just a piece of metal. Now, Jesus was not blessing Caesar. Or saying that Caesar owned the land. The usage of Caesar's coins acknowledged what they were already questioning Jesus about. They, therefore, the obligation to pay tax went along for that. That's what Jesus is saying. What about us today? What does this imply when he says, render, pay your debt to the government that is over you? Jesus says, as believers, we are to render under the government over us what is due for living under its benefits, regardless of whether it's completely godly or not. But we're not to give ultimate allegiance, for that belongs to God alone. And that's what he means with the other has. So that means that you're obligated by God to pay taxes. You're obligated to serve in the military. You're obligated to vote. You're obligated to obey property laws. And by the use of render, he says it's not an option. It's a requirement in obedience to God. You're not to withdraw from society because we're believers. We're commanded to live and to participate. And we're commanded to do that out of an obligation to God, and we do that for God, not in order to create a perfect state, because there's never going to be a perfect state on the earth. Now think about this. Jesus is saying this about the government that will be used to execute him in just a couple days. The most heinous crime ever committed was the murder of the Son of God, and Jesus says tax is due for living under Caesar's rule because of the benefits that go along with it. First Peter, Peter echoes this very thing in First Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man 
for the Lord's sake. Whether it be the king, to the king as supreme, or to governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, or for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. That's what Peter said. And out of all the people in the world, we're the most blessed. Because our system, we can vote people in and we can vote people out. I mean, not everybody has that ability. I mean, you have an obligation uh, as, a, as a debt of citizenship. I can remember Pastor Birdie talking about whenever he grew up, and he's just a little bit older than I am, but I got a little bit of this. You, you, the idea of serving in the military was a, was, a, was a repayment of a debt that you owed to your country because you lived here. And it has nothing, I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't uh, um, contradict the fact that you're a believer and that you're a citizen of heaven. You're living in this earth and you're living on this earth. And while you're here, you have a debt of citizenship that you're obligated to. And just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you withdraw from the political process or, or say, I'm not going to pay taxes or I'm not going to work in the world. God's going to take care of me or whatever else it is. Even though that system is messed up, and it is, and it will be messed up until Jesus comes. But you don't withdraw from it. Why wouldn't we be involved? If this is a requirement for believers under Rome, which was not a democracy or a republic, think of how much greater our obligation is. So we should participate. We should be good, honorable, God and people-loving citizens. Al Mohler, probably more than anybody else, helped me with this concept. And I don't even remember what it was in, a sermon or a book. When I'm trying to figure out how does being a Christian living in a country or in a world where you have unbelievers that are, that, are, that are making laws and are leading and doing all of this, and this is not my home, it's going to perish. So I can put all of my efforts into, into building a, you know, a great country or whatever else when I'm, it's just going to perish, I'm going to go to heaven, but you're not going to get anybody much more patriotic than I am, my grandfather in World War II, so there's this tension that's there. And I can remember growing up when we prayed in school and I got paddled in school and I got paddled more than I prayed. And things are different, aren't they? So how do you reconcile all of that? What, me as a believer, knowing that this world is going to perish, what is my God, what is, I need a hook from God to hang my responsibilities on. What is it? Because I know I'm not going to make a, a perfect world with my effort. I'm not going to change the world by laws. And Al Mohler helped me understand something. You're obeying the second great commandment to love other people when you enact moral and just laws. Because Romans 13 says that God established law to restrain wickedness. So if you want some, I mean, you're so spiritual that you don't need to live in this world. You can't wait for heaven, and so you don't need to participate in politics or whatever else. Listen to what I'm saying to you right now. Be a spiritual person and realize that you're loving 
unbelievers by helping enact moral and just laws because that restrains wickedness. It does not save them. Only the gospel can do that. It does not change their hearts. But to the fact that their hearts are free to do whatever it wants to do, it multiplies their judgment and multiplies sin. And so you are doing a good work and loving your neighbor by laboring to enact good and moral and just laws against homosexuality, against abortion, against any number of other things that you can think of. And you say, but what if the state asks me to dishonor God or do something that forces me to sin? Then Jesus gives a second divine obligation. And this is not just for believers. This is for everyone. You give to God what you owe Him. Here's the answer to all men, not just those inside the church or inside Israel. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, Render to Caesar, repay what you owe Caesar, the debt that you owe for being a citizen, the things that are Caesar's. And then you supply the word render here and render to God the things that are God's. Jesus is not advocating two spheres of existence, like the natural world and the spiritual world, like there's the secular and then there's the divine. He's not saying that this is the only time that you're a Christian and when you go to work that you're not a Christian there. He's not advocating that at all. He's not saying give material things to the material world and spiritual things to God. That's not what Jesus is saying. The material, the way, what you do with your material possession says everything about your spiritual condition. Whether you give, whether the way that you, the way that you, I mean, the obligation to pay taxes is, is, is unto God. He's showing us here that God rules over both. Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Amen? The world and all its people belong to Him. All. God is the ruler of the living and the dead. The material and the immaterial. And everything in between. And Jesus Christ is the preeminent one, according to Colossians chapter 1. Whether they acknowledge Him or not, He is Lord. And every man, every woman, every child will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father one day. Everyone will bow. And that is the basis for the command to render to Caesar what is his. And the answer Jesus gives here is why they're utterly astonished. astonished. They ask about the lesser of the two realities. They're asking about taxes. And Jesus points them to what they owe God. They asked about paying Caesar what he claimed was his, and yet Jesus' focuses is, is on the more important of the two, give to God what belongs to him. And from the conclusion of the previous parable of the vineyard, they, they were obviously not giving God what was his, right? There was no fruit. And they hadn't done that during the time of the prophets. And they're not doing that even now that God sent His Son 
They're not rendering to God what is God's, what was what's due Him, what is owed to God. And they should be more worried about what God is going to do rather than what Caesar is going to do, is what Jesus is saying. And this statement has two implications. First, it implies when man claims what only God deserves, you're not to give it to him. While on one side of the coin, Caesar's image was stamped, that was what was due him, as far as taxes are concerned, was was to be paid. But the other side, which declared worship to Caesar as a high priest, was, was not due to Caesar. That was only due to God. Jesus, using the coin, he probably turns it over now on the other side. You see the inscription? Whose who's, who's image? Caesar's. Then give to Caesar what you owe him for living here. But it turns it over, but give only to God what is due His name. We're not to give any man or government what is due only to God alone. The state does not have absolute authority, and when it conflicts with obedience to God, God must be obeyed. And you want an example of that? Acts chapter 4, verses 19 through 20. Peter and John answered and said to them, that's when they were arrested, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And so, you pay your taxes... But if the government tells you that you can't witness, you can't gather in God's name, you are forced to do something that's contrary to the Scriptures, you obey God, you do not give that, uh, that responsibility, uh, that obedience, I should say, to, to them. But you give to God His worship. Now, I want you to notice that this is directed to all. Inside the church, outside the church. God is due worship from all. From Caesar, from you, from President Xi, from King Kim Jong-un, from President Trump, from whoever else. God is owed something. And what God commands is that you worship Him and Him alone. Because He's a jealous God. Remember, the word render is what is owed. It's a debt. And just as the coin bears Caesar's image for operating in his realm, you as a human being bear the image of God. All of you. And you were made to serve Him. And you owe God something for living in His realm. Right? You don't get to free will and decide you can live however you want to live. And to do that indiscriminately, when you bear the image of God. And ultimately, sin is going to come back to the marring of that image and then what you do to others who bear that image. Isn't that what James says? You don't curse people because they're made in the image of God. You don't kill people because they're made in the image of God. You don't determine somebody who's before birth or whenever they're so old and they, they can't do anything that they have no value because they still have value because they're made in the image of God. That's what the Bible says. And you owe God that worship because you bear His image. 
And you're going to be held accountable for what you do with that worship because you bear His image. You render unto God what is His. The coin belongs to Caesar, but you belong to God. And Genesis chapter 3 says, Man alone was made in the image and the likeness of God. It's a profound statement. The reason that you can witness to anybody on the planet and call them to believe in Jesus Christ is because He's the Creator. The Creator, the creation is responsible to the Creator. Jesus is not just the Christian God and Muhammad is the whatever He's, he's the Creator, and if He's the Creator, then His creation is responsible to Him. And that carries an obligation of worship. We were created to serve God, not the other way around. Isaiah 43, Everyone who's called by My name, whom I have created for My glory, I have formed Him. Yes, I have made Him. Not just in Isaiah. 1 Corinthians 10.31 whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's not just a command to Christians. Every person on this planet, whenever they eat or whenever they drink, they're to give all glory to God. Why? Because He's the Creator. <laughs> Let your light so shine among men that they might see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven, Matthew five sixteen. That's not a just suggestion to do God a favor. Hey, by the way, live your life for God so He can get some credit for it. It's a command to live the life that He gave you for Him so that He might get the proper glory that's due His name. Spurgeon said, I learned when I was a boy that the chief end of man was to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But I hear now, according to the new theology, the chief end of God is to glorify man and enjoy Him forever. And yet this is the turning of things upside down. It is upside down. We have an upside down world, don't we? And God's great aim in creating and governing the world is that He be glorified, and He will be glorified. Jesus says, give to God what you owe Him. What do you owe God? What do you owe God? Everything. You're breathing this morning. God hasn't struck you dead this morning for your sin. You owe God everything. And if that wasn't enough, that He hasn't just fried you and me, think of all the good things that He does. Think of the blessings that you had this morning. Even if you had a bad morning, did you eat anything? Did you have some coffee? Did you have some juice, whatever it is? You had the ability to drink that? You had taste buds that enjoyed that? You're sitting in a comfortable room right now? The sun came up. On the just and the unjust. God is gracious, isn't He? He's good. He's kind to us. He doesn't give us what we deserve. And if you'll come to the Lord Jesus Christ, He'll give you more than you deserve. So much more. He'll take away your sin debt and He'll give you a home in heaven. Give God what you owe Him. You don't even exist apart from Him. You you owe Him love with all of your heart, soul, strength, mind, with all of your might. But there's a problem. 
while that's due God, sin rendered that impossible. And you now bear the likeness of Adam and the likeness of sin. And that's the reason that even Caesar's world is corrupt. And that's why I tried to change anything other than the heart is ultimately not going to do it. And that's why Jesus came to change that. To be crucified, to be buried, to rise again, to offer new life and a new image, which is in Him. And He offers that to anyone who will believe. You're being conformed. You're being remade in the image of Christ. You bore the image of God. You fell. Not only did Adam fall, but you chose to do exactly what Adam and Eve did in your own life. And now you bear the image of sin and the image of the fall. And in Jesus Christ, you get to be made a new creation and a new image is being formed. You're being stamped. You're being made in the image of Jesus Christ. And that's happening even this morning as you listen to His Word and as you respond. God is so kind to us, isn't He? And what you need to do is to receive the Lord Jesus Christ to give God what is due Him. And you say, how do I do that? The great exchange... You bow before Him and you offer to God what you are and all that you are, even with a marred image. And you say, Lord, broken and sinful, I am Yours. Make me new. And He will. And if you don't know Christ this morning, today's a good day, isn't it? And if you do know the Lord this morning, are you giving God what is due, giving Him worship, or are you just going through the motions? It's not drudgery to serve the living God. It's joy. And if it's drudgery or you're not enjoying it or, or the la- you, you can't even remember the last time that you felt that the worship ascribing worth to God then today's a good day to repent and just say, God, help me. I want to give you whatever it is. Um, Here I am, show me. And He'll show you. Put you by your heads. What does it mean to glorify God? It doesn't mean add anything to Him. We don't add anything to God. We just make much of the of the person He already is. God can never be fully described or displayed. It'll take all of eternity to even even attempt to understand. Even that'll be insufficient. Isaiah forty three seven said He created us to display His glory. His glory, that He might be known and that He might be praised. Is God being known because of your life? Is He being praised because of your life? I hope He is. But if He's not, 
the same God is the God of new beginnings.